Hi, I'm Corey Nathan, and this is Talking Politics and Religion Without Killing Each Other. Your home for engaging conversations about the topics that matter most in our culture. If you love nuance, if you want to better understand different points of view, if you're tired of the screamers taking all the oxygen out of the room, if you'll enjoy edifying, provocative, and fun conversations among high-profile public figures and regular folks like me, you love talking politics and religion without killing each other. Thanks for spending some time with us. Enjoy today's show. Welcome, welcome, welcome. We are talking politics and religion without killing each other. I'm your host, along with our co-host, Ronnie Nathan. Are we related? Nathan, that sounds familiar. Are we related or something? I don't take credit for anything you say. Okay, fair enough. Uh, And we're co-produced by my pal, Tristan Drew. And as always, if you like this show, please hit that subscribe button, leave us a review and all that good stuff and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, and Instagram. And without further ado, our next guest has a body of work and has contributed to our culture and her community in so many ways. Uh, Credit where credit is due. Sarah Stewart Holland's work was first brought to my attention by my partner, Tristan Drew's wife, Summer. Summer's a huge fan and is inspired and edified by Sarah's podcast, Pantsuit Politics, along with her co-host, Beth Silvers. And we'll learn a lot more about Sarah's background as a lawyer, writer, podcast host today. And Sarah Stewart Holland, thank you so much for joining us. How are you doing? I'm doing great. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited Summer reached out. You know, Summer took photos of me and my old blogging partner like a decade ago when I was in the mommy blog space. So I was so excited to hear from her again. That is awesome. Was that the, um, oh gosh, the the something redhead, the blue bluegrass redhead? That was my own individual when I started after that one, which that one was called Salt and Nectar because okay. my co-host Sarah was in on California. In California, I was in Kentucky. That's how she met Summer. And she took like seriously some of the most, the best pictures of me ever taken. It's still some of my favorite shots. Oh, that's great. That's great. Yeah. So Tristan and I have become really good friends and Summer is um, one of my really good friends out here. Uh, Summer's Seth's sister. So there's, it's all kinds of connections. So love it. I wanted to start by asking you about your granddad, Ollie Stewart, the drives that you took and how formative some of those talks in, in Ollie's car were for you. Oh, now, if you listen to my podcast, you know that I cry really, real easily. And so you said his name and I immediately teared up. That, that's a great first question. Most people don't read the acknowledgments and there's so much good stuff there. Yes. I, the first person I think at the end of our book was my, I, I, Ollie Stewart is not what I called him. Obviously he was my papa. Okay. And my papa would take me um, to the airport to fly out to California to see my father after my parents got divorced. And that, actually my paternal grandparents got my father's cut, like, visitation rights for a while. So I spent a lot of time with him. And, you know, he would just let me talk about anything and and he shared his thoughts and I felt very, you know, welcome to to be interested and to ask questions about politics with him as a very, very young age. And it was incredibly formative for me. I felt heard. I felt seen. I felt like this is something that I think is interesting and he thinks my interest in it is good. And so it must be good. I remember vividly talking to him about FDR. Um, He was a farmer. Um, at different points in his life. And he, then he worked at LBL, which is a part of our park system and was a huge infrastructure undertaking 
um, after the Great Depression by the Roosevelt administration, where they they flooded this huge area in Western Kentucky and created the these Great Lakes that we have, um, Lake Barkley and, and Kentucky Lake. And he worked in that area. And so we talked about FDR and we would talk about John Kennedy. And he was, you know, we call still call in the South a blue dog Democrat. Right. And and I learned from him, I think, in just this this cellular level, it just was like implanted into my brain that that government could help people, that government could be a force of good in people's lives and not just the people at the top. How old were you when you had this relationship with your grandfather? So my uh, parents got divorced when I was three and my father moved away like the next year. So I spent a lot of my really early childhood years um, with him elementary school through middle school and high school. He passed away when I was, that's why I teared up. I mean, the minute you said his name, um, he passed away from lung cancer uh, when I was in college. And so he's been, he's been gone quite a, quite a while now, but he's very, he's still very much a presence in our family. Dad, uh, Lisa found an audio tape of our 1993 Thanksgiving, which is about a month, maybe two or three weeks to a month after I met Miss Lisa, who I've been married to since uh, 1997. By the way, it rings of who she is and her where her home is because she has a Paw Mac and a Paw Paw Beach. Or, they're they're mm-hmm. long gone. But and a Papa Ollie. Who's Ollie's dad? Not to be confusing at all. Oh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> he was Ollie Jr. Yeah. Um, <sighs> but uh, on the tape, Dad, I, we had to stop at a certain point because um, now I might start crying, but my grandfather, my father's father, who I called Zeta, which is a Yiddish word for grandfather, uh, like a loving term for grandfather. He asked me about this girl that I met down south, uh, who was is Lisa and ultimately became my wife. But uh, Zeta passed away in 1995. The reason that it was really touching is that um, you hear me and my grandfather on this tape having, it's not an argument. It's like uh, the way that uh, Jewish people talk to each other sounds like an argument to others, <laughs> but we, we were arguing about Zayda dancing at my wedding, you know, cause I just said, I met a girl and his first question was, does she have all in Alabama? And he goes, does she have all her teeth? <laughs> oh, no. And then we, he was joking around, but then we got into, you know, I'll dance at your wedding. if because, you know, yeah. obviously the next question was, is she Jewish, you know, but um, anyway, sorry, not to take this uh, off the rails. I was curious, the part of, I want to interrupt. What? I want to interrupt here. Okay. Love it. The the interesting thing is if I even talked about dating a non-Jewish girl, my father would have thrown me out of the house. That's because he liked me better than you. You And then, then, you know, like 25 years later, his grandson is talking about marrying a non-Jewish girl. And sure, I'll dance at your wedding. Well, he, he had a very formative, you know, during... Some of those years, uh, this was toward the tail end of what I would consider. It that was chapter. before Corey became a Christian, by the way. Yeah. I'm not sure how my parents would have reacted to that. During a formative stage of my life, my Zeta was sort of a mooring for me, you know, when I was lost. And I, I think I was, I might have been suffering from some form of uh, depression or something like that. Uh, late teen years, early 20s. He, he had a very important role in my life and how, how I think and my values, but um, sorry, I didn't mean to take the conversation in this 
No, that's um, the beauty of podcasting. And I think that's, I think what you said too is so true. The power of audio in particular, um, about a year ago or two years ago, my grandmother discovered a CD of my grandfather singing and I had not heard his voice in probably a decade or more. And just listening to that was such an intense experience, even though I have photos of him and I think about him and I think to my book and I, you know, his influence in my life is, is so prolific. And then just, but hearing his voice was such a different thing and hearing him playing his guitar. And it was, it, and even still, even though I've heard it multiple times now, when I pull it out and listen to it, it just, it, it, it's such an emotional experience that that's so powerful. Yeah. In reading some of your work, hearing you talk about your hometown and how, how much a part of your identity uh, and you, you, how connected you feel to your home. A lot of it reminded me of, have you ever read Wendell Berry's work? Oh, seriously, I'm a Kentuckian. It's like required. Okay. It's legally required that you le- read Wendell Berry as a Kentuckian. So I hadn't heard you refer to him, but okay. So t- tell me about that. My father's read a lot of Wendell Berry too. Poetry, his essays, his fiction. Well, I think grounded is the perfect word to talk about Wendell Berry. I mean, he's incredibly powerful and, and the the foundation you feel in every word he writes and every word he speaks mm. of... Um, like he knows what directions he's headed in and what direction he's pointed in um, is so powerful and comforting, I think, particularly in today's uh, day and age. But yeah, he is amazing. And I think as a Kentuckian, you know, I'm an eighth generation Kentuckian. So oh. my family has uh, been here for a very long time. I have, uh, you know, relatives I can read their Revolutionary War pension records and where they fought and all these different pieces of history. And it's, that's a very like, powerful and influential narrative in both sides of my family, this fair, this strong connection to the place and to how long we've been here and how many generations have been here. And even in my hometown of Paducah, Kentucky, which is where I live, the generations that have lived here. And, you know, it's so interesting. It, it doesn't just, it doesn't just influence you and the way you think about your past, but it thinks it, it influences the way you think about your future. I had a friend a few days ago asked me, do you, do you ever see yourself like when your kids leave, like I'm going to just follow wherever my kids go or would you retire somewhere different? And it was just like kind of mind blowing to me. I'm like, no, like mm. I would never leave. Like, I, I'm not saying I wouldn't like maybe, you know, be a, a snowbird or something like that, but like, I would never not live here. This is my, like, this is the, the my home. This is such a huge part of who I am. And, and it is that connection to feeling like my people have been here um, for so long. It's one of the funniest stories is my great aunt Carolyn, who was sort of our family historian when my husband came home with me for the very first time when we were dating. He's from Atlanta and his parents, his mother grew up in Philly and his mother or his father grew up in Southern California. So there's like very this like all over the place and no super strong connection, I think, to any particular identity, geographic identity. And she said, where are your people from? And he was so confused by the question. Like, what do you... <laughs> He's like, well, I grew up in Atlanta. She's like, "Mm -hmm, but like, where are your people from? And he was like, I don't, Atlanta. Like he was like, literally just very confused by the notion of like your people and where are they from? But I, you know, I think that that is powerful. I love history. I think history, especially in conversations about politics and religion and difficult things is such a good framework to build. It offers so much perspective. It can offer hope. It can offer a sense that you're not alone. Like I just got an email from a 
curator at the Smithsonian Institute, we met when we were in Iowa, we went to the Iowa caucus and there were these people we were staying next to and they were literally from the Smithsonian Institute. They just, they would just come and gather, like they gather campaign materials and buttons and pins. They really love it when people make their own stuff to come uh, to political events and, and bring and they try to collect it for the Smithsonian. And he's just emailed me that he's writing a book about the 1800s and how people think our current polarization is just like a new invention, but we have been here before. Yeah. And we have been through this level of like misinformation and and polarization and argument before. And I th- I just, you know, I find that immensely comforting and, and that is a part of my identity and a part of why I live where I live and I like, I like to know that I live where generations of my family has lived before me. I feel I can feel them um, with me. And I think that that's enormously, uh, like I said, just just comforting. It gives you that that foundation. And I think that I think Wendell Berry speaks to so well. The strange thing is that when I read Wendell Berry, I completely relate to, to, to the sense of being grounded in a people um, a place, a culture. As a Jew, we carry our place with us. Mm-hmm. Jews don't identify with a place. Ironically, our family came from a Russian shadow. Excuse me? Today's the very day. Well, today's a hundred year anniversary that they, they went through Ellis Island. Oh, wow. That's amazing. Yeah. But, um, my family, my, my maternal family, lived in the same Russian shtetl for at least two or 300 years. I mean, I can trace back the names of people who lived in that shtetl to my grandmother's great-grandfather, which goes back to the mid-1800s. But we don't identify with that place. Mm-hmm. Jews carry our place with us wherever we go. And the last thing I want to say on the subject, the, the, the strange thing is that I have lots of friends from all over the country uh, who are not Jewish, who have no real ethnic identity and they can't identify really on an emotional level what it means for me to be a Jew. They just have this amorphous identity that's not grounded in, in history Mm-hmm. Well, culture, except American pop culture. That's not much of a grounding. It's not. Well, I'll ask this to both of you. Do you think that's why some of our dad, some of our friends from uh, Point Counterpoint and uh, Sarah, more generally, it's a, a community online. It's kind of like your podcast. <laughs> yeah. Where we have these um, conversations that we can't have, you know, on our public Facebook page, it would just get get too un- unwieldy. But some of our friends on there seem to have an identity that's defined by who they're voting for or which uh, radio programs or newspapers they're reading. Um, do, yes. do you think that's why th- w- they might not articulate it this way, but it's it's clear that their identity is wrapped up, say, in Trumpism, for example? I'm so glad you asked me. This is my absolutely favorite, most favorite topic. I totally agree with you. 
my most beloved friend from law school is Jewish. And we all, I always laugh like for a, for a Episcopal from Kentucky and a Jew from New York, we're just alike, except for those like couple minor points. My husband <laughs> even jokes that our friendship is based in vanity because we're so much alike. Um, and that's fine. Cause we're awesome. So, and I see that so much um, in Jewish culture and, and like at her wedding and at her mother's funeral, like there were these threads that I just, I recognize from a lot of like similarities in the culture um, where I grew up in and that connection to identity. And even, even now this took me, I had to get older to understand this fully because this wasn't like articulated to me as a child in the same way um, that it is inside Jewish culture in any, in any stretch of the imagination. But as I got older, I really learned particularly about the, the ethnic history. Like, so when I, when I started doing my ancestry research and like going back further than what my grandmother and my great grandmother, cause I mean, I grew when I was born, I had two great, great grandmothers still alive who lived to be over hundred. And I grew up with relationships with my great grandparents, um, like would spend the night at their house was very close to them. And, and three of my grandparents are still alive. And so I had them and I understood the history, but I wanted to like, I wanted to map it out. Right. And I thought like, like, oh, I would find this, this ethnic identity. And really what I felt, I came away feeling more like distinctly American because we, because my family had been here for hundreds of years. But I also did learn about the European ethnicity, which is primarily Scott Irish, which in a weird way kind of has some like similarities. Like they weren't tied to a place because they were getting beat up on by everybody. And that's why you see that like strong distrust of outsiders as a threat in a lot of Southern cultures, because a lot of it is Scott Irish. Um, that came over usually through Virginia or North Carolina and then up through and through Kentucky is like a lot of where my ancestry came from. And like just understanding those stories, I think people, you know, in, in American culture, we just have this like individualistic, everybody's a, everybody's a clean slate. And like, it's just not true. You know, like we carry generational trauma. We carry deep cultural stories. I read a really good book that was talking about basically America is like the European Union. Like we have like, very distinct geographic and cultural regions that are so different from one another. And I think in a way I, I kind of learned that because I would go to California where my, in Arizona, where my dad was living when I was little. And it was, it was like another universe <laughs> from Western Kentucky. Like it was so different. You know, I, I always say like, you know, I have a like love hate relationship with California. Like I grew, I feel like I get it. And also <laughs> I would never choose to live there. Like, it's just so, first of all, I'm too pale. Second of all, like, you know, there, because it, it feels a little unmoored to me, like, you know, but I think sometimes that's like a, I had like a very white perspective on that. Cause it's not really true. It's just California as a, as an idea of like white America is pretty new, but there are cultures in California that have been there way longer than the United States, you know? And so I just like all that, all those pieces growing up and, and, and putting them together more in adulthood and understanding how those stories affected me and affected my family. Um, and, and definitely like being in close relationships with people in other cultures and other, and other ethnicities and seeing how those like stories all came together. <laughs> my favorite, I, I'll have to tell y'all cause y'all love this. I had a friend <laughs> in law school, David, and he grew up on the upper West side. And he was like, I mean, I was 10 before I knew people, everybody wasn't Jewish. I just thought everybody was Jewish. <laughs> was like, yeah. like understanding people, like as a kid, how those stories come together for you. And then as you either build on them, take them apart or knit them into something new as you're an adult. Like, I just think that's so powerful. And when people's, cause identity is the hardest level of change. And so if your identity 
is wrapped up in your political perspective, yeah, that makes political conversations in particular very difficult. I think you I think you can see this this happening even around COVID, like the decisions and how you see things get really wrapped up in your identity. Like, so if somebody from the other side says something, even if it's true, you're like, well, no, because that's there, that's them and I'm me. And so I can't hear anything that might be reasonable or understandable from that perspective because it's you're asking people to to fundamentally undercut their their understanding of themselves which is a big psychological lift particularly in a stressful time but yeah i think you see that in so many places right now i'm going to tell you a really funny story a true story um i grew up in a uh, working class neighborhood in brooklyn all italian and jewish so we think of brooklyn as the old country well <laughs> My parents, when I was about 11 years old, sent me away on Christmas vacation to um, my aunt's farm. My uncle was a doctor in um, a rural part of New Jersey, but he had a working farm as well. And uh, we were playing with the kids, the other farm kids, in the next farm's treehouse. And we're sitting there, and a kid who's about 10 years old says, you Jews aren't so bad but those Catholics are horrible. <laughs> and like, I was like flummoxed because I had no idea anybody in the world was anything but Jewish but or Jewish Catholic. <laughs> <laughs> well, this is so interesting though, because my grandmother was just telling me this. Like, I was like, okay, so growing, when she was growing up, she's 84, they weren't, everybody was a Democrat. There was no debate to be had. Everybody was a Democrat. And I was like, so did you not have conflict? She's like, no, we fought about denominations. Like it was the Presbyterians <laughs> versus the Baptists versus the, that's what we fought about. Oh, what does she think about you going to an Episcopal church? Oh, she's good. No, she's down. It's the other side of my family that like oh. struggles. But okay. yeah, no, I grew up Baptist. And now my mother and stepfather, my husband was a grip Episcopal um, and he, he converted us all. I have a question. <laughs> I have a question for you about that. It's more of like a, amateur sociological question slash observation. It seems like certain Christian communities uh, we've been a part of, we went to Grace Baptist Church the first 10, 15 years I was a Christian. Uh, my kids went to Trin this um, for about 10 years, they were going to Trinity Classical Academy. There's really very little room for anything other than, you know, to put it bluntly, hardcore Republican conservative mm -hmm. political bent, at least in terms of what can be spoken about out loud, you know, but there are other church communities where the values and the one that we go to now is a, a Presbyterian church down in Pasadena that are really, it seems actually more scripturally based, uh, you know, so like uh, more naming, tolerant. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, definitely more tolerant. At the very least, the baseline is, is um, when it comes to social issues, popular social issues, that the baseline is at least libertarian. But the ones that are named and that that the church as a community is passionate about, uh, like, um, you know, concern for the poor or neighbors who are immigrants or I mean, there are some who are like I think of it as like out of the closet Democrats. But <laughs> how dominated by the former version, the you know, the assumption that everybody here is a Republican and if you're not, you're not a Christian, how how prevalent do you think that is in the church in, in America? 
I mean, I think it definitely depends on where you are, what denomination you're in. I mean, the, the Episcopal Church is very progressive, has been for a while, has a reputation of being progressive, I think. And I think that progressive Christianity overall is having like a real moment like <laughs> between just the amazing work of people like Rachel Held Evans and Nadia Boltz Weber and the Poor People's Campaign mm. and just like amazing work where people are like, oh, no, you don't get a monopoly on this. And I think that the particularly conservative evangelical Christianity's marriage to Trumpism and all the damage that has wrought is also something that's like I have so many women in my audience in particular who are devastated by their church's stance on Trumpism and conservative politics and who, you know, left the Republican Party, will not vote Republican ever again because of the church's uh, stances inside, you know, during the Trump administration in particular. And I I grew up Southern Baptist. I grew up in a church, you know, I'm, I turned 40 this year. And so I got a, I got the very tail end of the real Reagan conservative revolution situation at my church. Like it was coming, but I don't remember like abortion ever being brought up until I was in high school. And then it like, it took off pretty quick. And I, you know, I definitely had the impact of that. And I did not go to church for 10 years because of it. But, I, you know, I, I went back to church in part because I felt like I was asking people to give grace to the government and to like understand that it's an institution. It's not an institution without fault, but it's an institution built by humans. And if, you know, we have to give it grace and let it change and let it adapt and let it make mistakes. And I was not giving that grace to the church as an institution myself. I had decided that the Baptist church had failed me and therefore all church was, I was writing off all church and I didn't want to do that. And I'm so glad I went back. I mean, a church is a huge component of, you know, not just about my spiritual health, but my mental health, I think we learn so much by being in congregation with one another across generations, in particular across um, cultures. You know, in my my particular Episcopal church actually has a, a pretty fair amount of conservatives. Like now they're not, they're not, well, that's not true. We do have some like total MAGA conservatives in our congregation <laughs> and they get, they get mad a lot. They're, they're mad pretty often. That's okay though. <laughs> and I just think it's really, bless it's really, <laughs> I know, bless, bless them, bless their <laughs> sweethearts. You know, like, I think that's just, that's just part of it. I think that there is a real aspect of we have to learn to live in disagreement with one another. Like we're just there, you know, whether you're talking about the United States, it's a country of 300 million people across cultures, across generations, across geographies, or you're just talking about a church congregation, or you're just talking about a marriage. Like nobody's going to agree all the time. Like we're working on our second book. Our first book was called, I think you're wrong, but I'm listening. And we've, we're jokingly telling people that the second book is, I still think you're wrong. Now what? Like, it's just, <laughs> we have to look, we've like, we just, we have either forgotten or never learned how to hold that tension with one another. Because we, in, in part of it, honestly, I think, you know, my faith is a huge, huge part of who I am. And it keeps me grounded in the idea that like my opinions are not who I am. Um, and so if someone, you know, my, my humanity, my, my connection to my fellow human beings and that, that central thread that holds us all together, that's what I want to keep front and center. And when we, you know, when we over identify with our feelings or, or our opinions, I think it makes it so hard for us to stand in community together because it feels like you don't just disagree with me. 
you disagree with who I am, you know, like, and I, we hear a lot like, well, we don't have, we don't have the same values. We hear that a lot. And I keep, I can't stop thinking about this book. I read about nonviolent communication where the author made the case that like, no values are universal. That's why they're values. Right. But you disagree about strategy. (laughs) Like, and that's so hard though, because it's like, do I really share the same values with like a white supremacist? God, I hope not. Right. Like where, how do we do that? And you know, what we always tell people is some of it is just learning to say, I'm not going to dehumanize you. That's all I can commit to right now. Mm-hmm. You know, all I can say is I'm not going to treat you as less than human because that affects my humanity. And that's about all I can, that's about all I'm, I can, that's as far as I can walk in your direction. That's as far as I'm capable of loving my enemy as myself. And I, you know, but even that feels like a huge lift with certain, certain members of our beloved community. And I just think that church is a space where we can keep working at that and keep talking about how hard it is and keep thinking about that. And that's what I particularly in progressive churches, because the church I grew up in was not about holding space. It was about compliance and it was about guilt and it was about shame. And it was about the, all the ways you didn't measure up instead of all the ways we are connected to one another. And I, you know, I go, I go, I still go to church because that's the lesson I want my children to learn. Not all the ways you're not measuring up, but all the ways that we're connected to one another and how that can really help us move in a, in a more enlightened direction, hopefully. Yeah. I think one of the, um, one of the universal uh, ironies of being a human being, a religious human being, that has come to the fore in the era of Trump and the issue we started with, namely the church's responses to Trump. In the Jewish, I'm an Orthodox Jew, I'm an observant Jew, and I'm surrounded by, by friends who support Trump because he's great for Israel. Mm. You know, he's terrific mm-hmm. for Israel. He's got his daughter's Jewish. You know, he's against abortion, mm-hmm. which is a big thing. And for me, I, mean, I had to learn to accept my son becoming a Christian, which was a huge three, four year journey for both of us. But my response to my f- Jewish friends is I'm willing to empathize and understand, and I'm willing to have a transactional relationship with most people outside of my family and dearest friends. Mm-hmm. But at a certain point, you cross a moral ethical line. I don't care what your position is on Israel. Mm-hmm. If you enjoy humiliating people, if you enjoy exploiting people, lying as a serial liar, uh, engaging in what looks to me like sociopathic behavior, you know, you can you can offer me a million dollars. I don't care. Yeah. At a certain point, you draw a line in the sand, say this, this is not something I can abide. I have to reject this. I want to illustrate, I want to use two different illustrations because it seems that those who are committed to hashtag nuance, <laughs> hashtag nuance, um, you're, you're like the nuance twins. You're the, the nuance, <laughs> you're on team nuance. Um, which I, one of my favorite words in the world, but Uh so I had a conversation. Well, it was one of these group conversations with a bunch of different people from a bunch of different walks of life, but I had relationships with, with all of them. And uh, a couple of my friends who ended up still supporting 
uh, voting for Trump this last time around, many of them were are still great and they make intelligent cases for why they voted for him this this time around. Uh, two or three of them are just, you know, all, all they have are bumper stickers, you know, and I don't mm-hmm. have quite as much patience for that. But the only person I, I have a rule that um, nonsense gets muted, but but some other things are just a line that you just can't cross and and you will be blocked for certain things. And one of my friends who is definitely what I def, definitely identify as more progressive, he takes a very hard stance that anybody who voted for Trump is just no longer worthy of anything other than flat out aggression and hatred. And I tried to make the case, I, I tried to make the case that like, look, I'm not ready to write off 74 million human beings. You know, I do think that, you know, supporting or justifying or, or still making a case that a t- storming the Capitol was in any way justified or, you know, purporting these silly notions that it was actually Antifa or there, there are some other ones that just really frustrate me. Like I, I can't, I haven't, my heart isn't big enough to find common cause with folks who are saying that. But I have plenty, plenty friends who did end up voting for Trump that I understand. I don't agree with it, but I understand why. So this fella, like, no, he just, his argument to me was that, no, you have to confront these people aggressively with facts, you know, but ultimately at the end of the day, I don't think my other friend who did vote for Trump is going to remember any fact that this dude was throwing at him. He's just going to remember he was an asshole. That's yeah, he's it. gonna remember how he felt. They don't. Re- they don't remember what you tell them. They remember how you made them feel. Yeah. Well, yeah but, but facts, facts make people get stuck even harder in their position. Mm-hmm. It's listening to them and reflecting back that you understand what they're saying. That kind of opens the door a little bit. I'm a just the biggest Oprah fan you'll ever meet in your whole life. I say she half raised me. Because I watched her every day at four for 20 years. And it was most of the 20 years. You look like her. I see the resemblance. Yeah, yeah, totally. Mama Oprah. (laughs) I just adore her. And what I learned at her feet over 20 years of watching that show every day at four o'clock is people have to feel heard. They have to feel heard. If they do not feel heard, you cannot make, if you don't step toward them to listen, they can't feel heard. Now, I'm not trying to walk up to a neo-Nazi and like step toward them in understanding. That's not what I'm talking about. But I also don't advocate for like the death penalty or for, you know, discarding people, even people who have committed the most heinous crimes, because I think that does something to all of our humanity. And what I'm trying to do in the process is protect my own humanity. Now, you know, with regards to people, you know, my own father is full MAGA, voted for Trump. We always tell people. First of all, a stance on all 74 million Americans that voted for Trump is for nothing but social media because you don't hold a relationship with 74 million people. Now, you are connected to them through your shared citizenship. But like the idea that you have to take a stance on that, that like that's for, for what? Because you're going to have a conversation with all 74 million of them like that to me is nothing but like posturing for social media. So everybody can and can you can stand in the right space of outrage. She's, he's not going to confront 74 million Americans with facts, like, unless he's, I don't know, Lester Holt and still, you're not going to reach all of them. So I just think like, to me that that is, 
that's again, over identification with your feelings about this, because that's you, you, I, I want to be a good person who's on the right side of history. And listen, I get it. I don't know if y'all know anything about the Enneagram, but I'm an Enneagram one. So I'm like highly motivated by justice and fairness. And I really like things to be black and white, but I tried for a good solid 25 years to shame people into agreeing with me and it just didn't work. (laughs) And I, if you care enough about that, then you should want to do things that work. And that does not work. I want to actually move people. And as much as I desperately wish righteous anger and shame to move people, it does not. You know, I, I, I kept at it. I, tr- I promise. I thought the next Atlantic read was really going to be the one that persuaded everybody, but it just never worked out that way for me. Um, and if somebody can crack that nut, Godspeed, but I could not. Um, and so I just think for me, what I try to think about is like, what, you know, how, what is the relationship between the person that I'm talking to or that I'm wanting to work on? I definitely want to work on my father. I definitely want to persuade my father. I definitely want my father to like not fall for QAnon or um, not be like overtly racist. Like these are things that I deeply care about. And, but I still also want to stay in relationship with my father. And so that is my number one priority is to stay in relationship with him. And so when I'm interacting with him, I want to interact with him in a way that builds trust and maintains that connection. And to know that it's like not just one conversation, like, I think we have this idea, my co-host always jokes, like people think they have to sit down at the Thanksgiving dinner table and rise with draft legislation on immigration. You don't have to do that. Like no one's asking you to do that. Um, we need to learn how to like play a long game here to to work on each other slowly, to rub each other's rough edges off, not to bludgeon each other into agreement. Because again, how, I mean, to your friend, I would say, how, how's that working for you? Like, yeah. not to quote Dr. Phil, because he's kind of an asshole, but like, <laughs> how's it working for you? If it's working, great. I, it wasn't working for me. And so I want, I really do want to work on my fellow Americans. And, I, and in order for that to be true, I also have to let them work on me. I was telling my co-host, I feel right now, you know, in the middle of a pandemic, like a COVID moderate, because because of where I live and because of my political persuasion and where I live. So I'm a, a liberal in a red state. I both have friends that I think have taken COVID not seriously enough, but who I know to be loving, caring people. They're not like anti-maskers. They're not COVID deniers, but they take more risks than I would. And I know people who are locked up in a way that I think is completely unnecessary. Right. So I can see, I see both. I, I hate a both sideism argument, but I, ha- I have experienced, you know, kind of both sides of the spectrum. And that's so valuable if you will let that work on you. If you will realize that like really, truly, no one has a monopoly on being right all the time. Not Joe Biden, not Donald Trump, not Dr. Fauci, not Oprah. God, as hard as it is for me to say that. Like, and just to- Me, I'm right all- There you go. Uh, You know what I mean? But like, that's hard. And I think that we, because we want, we want black and white. We want yes or no. We want this is the right answer and then we're done or we fixed it and we can move on. I think that's just sort of like the capitalistic training that there's like a, there's something you can buy that will fix it. Um, there's something you can do that will fix it forever and always. And nuance, you know, our, our clarion call is always to like, let there be gray. Let there, don't find yourself in a binary that doesn't exist. Like, let there be some fluidity. Let there be adaptability. Let there be an awareness that it's never quite as simple as we want it to be. As much as I I truly hate that, I do. I'm a black and in my core, I'm a black and white person. I want it to be, 
I want it to there to be a right answer and to be able to, to sit in my self-righteousness. Self, I was saying self-righteousness is my favorite emotion, but I just have to keep <laughs> it in check. It's also significant that you're saying this because both you and Beth are, are lawyers. Yes. Yes. I, I only play one on TV. That's what I tell people. I really <laughs> never practiced. I worked in politics. Okay. So you went into politics. I was going to ask if you were a litigator, if that's, that's what you're training. Lord, no. Okay. Um, I did love moot court though in law school. Okay. Still like the sound of my own voice even back then. Uh, no, I, I graduated from law school and worked for Hillary Clinton's 2007 presidential campaign and then went to work for um, Senator Menendez from New Jersey before convincing my husband to move back to my hometown of Paducah, Kentucky, where I decided nice. to take up a career in mommy blogging and podcasting. So there you go. I was going to ask you about that. So at what point did you decide to do, what was that the first one? I, I mentioned Bluegrass Redhead, but what, what, what was your first blog that you decided to do and why did you decide to do it? So I had a blog called Salt and Nectar with a dear friend of mine, also named Sarah. Um, and she reached out to me because my husband and I had a personal blog where we were, where we would just, you know, write about when we were moving to DC and, you know, vacations and just sort of like, I mean, I'm dating myself so much, like back what you blogged about in 2003. Um, and she, so I think she had seen my personal blog and, and thought like, Ooh, would you want to be do this like in a more professional way as a mommy blog? Cause we both had boys, little boys the same age. And I was like, for sure. So we did that. And then she started working for a startup. So I started my own blog, Bluegrass Redhead. And then while I was doing Bluegrass Redhead, I started to get back in politics. I did a political training program for women considering public office and then decided to start Pantsuit Politics with Beth and run for office all in 2015. And so I ran for city commission in my hometown and won and then ran again and lost. Um, but yeah. That's great. Yeah. You said that two the two most important questions that were ever asked of you is, will you marry me? And why don't you do a podcast? <laughs> yes, absolutely. Well, yeah, my husband is at the center of both of these pivotal moments, which is, you know, I'm, I'm a child bride. I got married to my husband out of college. Uh, I was 21. I met him when I've been with him since I was 19 years old. And so he had been harassing me truly. Like I could, I could tell this story in a way that's more flattering to him, but it really was just like, you got to start a podcast. It's going to be the next thing. You'd be so good at it. you got to do it. you got to do it. Um, and so I thought, well, I will, I'll interview all my friends in politics because I still had lots of connections from my time in D.C., like women working in politics because I had a hunch Hillary would be running again. And I thought this would be a really cool topic, but I really like to answer questions <laughs> more than I like to interview people. And so oh, we do a lot of interviews on our show, but I, I did one and it just kind of sat there. I think the truth is I like to be in a partnership. Um, both I liked my blog partnership more than my individual blog. And I definitely loved, I love what I do with Beth more than if I was having to run an interview show all by myself. But that sat there for a while. And then when Beth wrote a guest post on my blog, I thought, oh, maybe we could do something together. And I was like, would you want to start a podcast? And she said, what's a podcast? And I said, don't <laughs> worry, we'll, we'll work that out in production. And, and here we are. Is that how you all met? No, we went to college together. Oh. We were sorority sisters at Transylvania University, this tiny liberal arts school in Kentucky. We weren't super close. Like, I think people think we were really good friends. And then we became like decided to start a podcast, but we were not friends when we started the podcast. We have built our friendship talking politics, which sounds bananas, especially when you tell people we started the podcast in 2015 from different political parties. Now, she is now a Democrat, but oh. I was going to ask you that because I she, want her yeah. over. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, it wasn't me. It was the way that the Republican Party was per, per behaving. But yeah, she, yeah, she is now a, a registered Democrat, but she's more like an independent. It's just you have to it, to be able to vote in primaries in, in Kentucky. You have to be 
in a party. And I think she just like, again, she represents that, that contingent of our listeners, people who just like thought truly, if I had a nickel for every letter I've particularly gotten 2020 from women that were like, I grew up, I thought Republican, the, if you were a good person, you were a Republican. That was the only option you had. Um, if you were a Christian particular, and I finally, like they pushed me away and I will never be back. And I mean, I, she definitely represents that contingent. We started this political group on Facebook eight years ago for civil conversation with rules so that we could talk politics on Facebook without people going nuts and getting crazy. And over the eight years we've been doing it, what's happened is the lunatics have fallen by the wayside. And now the people that we talk to haven't changed their positions much, but we all talk to each other in a civil way. So the noise that I hear out there is that our society is so polarized and the loudest voices are the craziest voices. But my personal experience is that people are able to talk to each other in a civil way more now than they did four years ago. You know, that when y'all said you had this group, this is what it reminded me of. And I thought, man, groups really are the future if the, if we're going to save anything beneficial from Facebook. Do you do you know the writer Zanep Tufeci? I'm totally obsessed with her right now. No, no. Oh, she's amazing. They call her the Internet's best hobby virologist. <laughs> she she's a sociologist um, and like a, an academic professor, but she writes for The Atlantic and she went on a bunch of podcasts because she was like saying stuff way early in the pandemic and saying it correctly before even some public health experts were like, she was one of the first people to be like, no, of course we should wear masks. This is clearly aerosol and we should aerosolized and we should wear masks. And I just, I have a, an enormous amount of respect for her. And she was talking about in her, her latest Substack about how Facebook is like contextless. So you have your like college boyfriend and your mom in a thread together. Like they would never have a, like they would not have a conversation. <laughs> <laughs> There's no context there. You know, that's something Jenny O'Dell wrote about in her book, how to, how to do nothing. I think it's called like that. It's, there's no context when we're right. all together in the space. And I think the power of groups like that is it provides context, right? So you're coming in instead of just being thrown in with different expectations. I mean, I truly think sometimes like st between stealth expectations and personality differences, like you could probably sort out all the polarization because so much of politics truly is personality and how you react to stress and if your default emotion is fear or, you know, whatever it is. And so I think when you have those groups and they, they just give some context, they give a shared vision, a shared expectation, you're really re removing a lot of the barriers to having conversations that are actually productive instead of conversations that are just a stage for conflict. You know, it's funny, the, um, the thread that I talked about that I referred to a little earlier, my first exhortation to this guy, Jonathan, was, Jonathan, you have no relationship with my friend, Sean. You know, I graduated high school with this kid and I haven't seen him in about 30 years. You don't know him from Adam. You don't have any shared uh, experience. Yep. So this is not a very productive or certainly not a contextualized conversation. So I mean, and it's hard because, like I said, we are as Americans in a relationship together. We are citizens of the same country. And so we do share a connection. And I don't know if we understand or have the proper tools to navigate that particular connection. And I certainly don't think social media always presents the best opportunities for us to navigate that shared connection. 
because, you know, that's kind of, that was my, in 2016, when I was just truly devastated by the result, devastated. I had worked for Hillary Clinton. I adore this woman. I think that she is just the most amazing human. I'd seen it up close and personal. You know, we had been to the Democratic National Convention. It was on my birthday. I watched her accept the nomination. Like I was emotionally invested. And on that, you know, when it became clear that Donald Trump was going to win, I just thought, you know, I have a choice here. And the choice is I have to decide how I feel about my fellow Americans who voted for him because they're not going anywhere. They're not going anywhere. And I'm not going anywhere. I never for once you know, entertain the idea of like, well, would I go live in another country? We had listeners who did. We had a listener who straight up moved to Denmark, but that's not me. I'm never going to do that. And so I have to decide for myself, for my own mental health, again, because the way you treat your human, your fellow human beings affects you. It doesn't just affect them. It's not just a weapon, right? It is also impactful on your own psychological, spiritual, mental health. And so I just had to decide, like, I got, you know, they're not going anywhere. Louisiana's not going anywhere. And if you're in Louisiana and you were so happy that Trump won, California's not going anywhere either, right? So, like, we all have to decide what does that mean for us? What does it mean for us moving forward if we are so far apart and still connected to one another? I had a really interesting conversation with uh, a friend of mine. He's the pastor at uh, Grace Baptist, the main the main teaching pastor at Grace Baptist. We don't we don't go there anymore, but I still consider him a friend. And I, I said uh, he so dad Dave had supported Mike Garcia in a very <laughs> concrete way. He put together a breakfast of I think he said forty pastors from the area to rally support in the um, Christian community. I don't know how he straddled that line between making sure not to mix you know his his role as a you know, uh, as a pastor with uh, with politics, but he, I guess, he was able to to navigate it okay. Mike Garcia is a really Trumpy oh, congressperson. By hold, the way, hold on. Mm-hmm. That, yeah, let me. I'm going to get into that. So I said, I said, um, I, I told him, I, Mike Garcia is faithfully representing Georgia's 14th district. Mm-hmm. The problem is that he was elected by California's 25th district. Not only that, he was elected by 333 votes out of 350,000 people who who voted. That's less than one tenth of one percent. I got into some specifics. So he voted on January 6th against I think that one was the Pennsylvania Electoral College vote. And then the next day was the Arizona or it might have been reversed. But he voted against affirming those Electoral College votes for those two states. And then he voted which came first, the impeachment vote or, or the uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene votes? The impeachment vote. Yeah, so he voted against impeachment. And then the, the kicker was just the Marjorie Taylor Greene vote. Um, now, interestingly, uh, Dave Dave was upset about the January 6th vote, but he really, he really, um, we had a, a, not an argument, but more of a conversation. We disagreed on the Marjorie Taylor Greene votes. And he said she was duly elected by her district. I said, yeah, the, the vote wasn't to kick her out of Congress, you know? So I have a nuanced view on that too. As much as I object to everything that she stood for and everything that she said and all these different things, I would not, I don't, I don't know if I would have voted to boot her out of Congress because she was elected free and fair. Right. You know what I think is the actual problem here? How many people did you say voted 
in, in for, our district. Uh huh. So this for was my Mark point. Gar- Mike Garcia. How much? What did you say it the total 50, vote was? It was fifty percent plus three hundred and thirty-three out of three hundred and fifty thousand. Three hundred fifty thousand so, votes. But that's the problem. The problem isn't the margin. The problem is that we're expecting one person to represent 350,000 people. I don't care if they all agree or not. Our representation is jacked. Like I'm obsessed with this number right now. I mean, there are 40 million people in California, mm-hmm. 40 million people, and they have 80 members of the state house, 80 people to represent 40 million. Oh, yeah. Or like 435 people to represent 300 million. So I think that's bananas. According to Washington's number, uh, George Washington's number, we should have 10 representatives here or more. Right. Yeah. Like, well, it should be like he was about 60,000. There's a half ratified constitutional amendment out there written by James Madison. That's like about 40,000. You know, truly, we need like 6,000 members of the House of Representatives. I was even reading about the Los Angeles County Commission and each commissioner represents four million people. That doesn't that's not representation. That's ridiculous. That can't be. I think we're obsessed with like gerrymandering. Totally valid. Totally valid problem or money in politics. Valid problem. But I am becoming increasingly convinced the reason our democracy is stumbling along is it's just not big enough for how big we are. Like we stopped. We stopped at the early 1900s. Like they said 435 in 1926 or something like that's not in the Constitution. They just decided that's what fit in the room. Who cares what can fit in the room? We have Zoom now. Like it's just it's crazy to me. And I think like I don't know if you read that Ezra Klein New York Times piece. I thought it was so good about California makes liberals scared, like makes them a little awkward, because if the idea is like the only problem is Republicans, well, then why isn't California just cooking with gas and solving all its problems since it's basically run by Democrats? And I think part of the problem is the representation, like the proportionate representation in our country at literally all levels of government is broken. It's broken. Yeah. Yeah. Well, my, my point with Dave was that I don't think that Mike is representing a vast majority of his district, you know, because he, he's he's effectively representing, like I said, George's 14th or more specifically, more accurately put, he's representing a radical fringe that would right. support having someone who harassed a teenager who just lost 17 of his classmates and, and, and teachers, you know, harassing that teenager supported keeping her on the education committee. Right. Yeah. Well, and that's the thing. It's like if we had 6,000 members, there might be radical fringe, but they would be like 15 out of 6,000. They're having that that radical fringe has a disproportionate influence, because even if they're representing their district like Marjorie Taylor Greene is, that's just dis- that, you know, it's not right. Like she's rep- her district is like probably I would guess, you know, a couple probably, I don't, I don't know, I'm just totally guessing 100,000 or more. Then you have these districts over here that are representing almost a million people. Like that's, that's not fair. Yeah, <laughs> That's just not fair. Sarah, I'm, I'm going to play the devil's advocate here. Toward the end of my career, I was an assistant principal in New York City in a city high school. God bless you. And oh, it was great. I love my career. I mean, I but that's not the story. I come from a family of educators. I just I believe in it. That's the Lord's work. During my time as an administrator, we went from a system where the administration made all the critical decisions for the school to a system where we had peer review and we had committees and committees of teachers. Let me tell you something, trying to make a decision with 20 people at a high school 
it didn't work. I can't imagine how we could run a government with a House of Representatives consisting of 6,000 people. Yeah. Okay. I got you. I'm ready. Okay. So here's the thing. <laughs> here's the thing. So part of Ezra Klein's thesis is that it is exactly yours, which is it's too hard to get things done in California. Now you're a New Yorker, right? Do you still live in New York? I live in the mountains of New York half the year and in Southern California, the other half. But I'm assuming, you know, Robert Moses. Yes, yes. I do. Of course. Okay. So, you know, the idea was we had Robert Moses. He was too powerful. And a lot of that reaction was the sort of the technocracy, I can never pronounce that word, but like we would put these technocrats in charge. They'd be the experts. They wouldn't have too much power, but we'd have all this expertise, especially the Kennedy administration was really big on this. And you see that throughout our government, you particularly see it in California. So we have lots of, lots, a little bit, not too much democracy, but democracy in the wrong parts of the process is what I would argue. There's too many points, like you're saying, too many committees, too many environmental reviews, too many referendums. That Those things aren't bad, but the process has to be, there has to be a, a decision point, right? So I don't think it's necessarily that the 6,000 people, my co-host is also not skeptical, but it's very like we better have some really good processes in place um, so that decisions can be made because I totally agree with you. It gets to the point where there's like there's too many inflection points. There's too many decision points. There's too many decision makers where you can't get anything done. And I think that's definitely what Ezra Klein was arguing in his piece. Like that's what happens A lot in of California. People who end up in, in as decision makers are more involved in promoting their egos Mm-hmm. than the issue at hand. Right. I, but I just think like when you look at Congress right now, which has 435 members, like it's not like they're just like, you know, cooking with gas and like doing things all the time and getting all so much legislation passed. And I don't think it's because there's too much power. I think there's a lot of things going on. It's to, it's a lot of concentrated in party leadership. Some of the rules suck, but I do think when you look at like, for example, like Germany has, I think, what did my friend tell me? My friend lives in Germany right now. And I think Germany has, oh, 80 million people. Does that sound right? I don't know if that's right. But they have like 600 members in their legislative body, like way more. Our proportionate representation on a federal level is like a disaster as compared to other industrialized nations. And I think what you see is because we have a two-party system and because there's so few members representing so many people, it polarizes, it makes it so you just have two options. And I think you'd see with 6,000 members, a lot more interesting alliances. Like, I think you would see some ideologues on one side and on the other. Like, I think you'd see like the Josh Hawley and the Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez coming together on minimum wage hikes. And Mm -hmm. we'd all be like, what? But that yeah. could I think that could happen if there were more members, if there were more places for people to find compromise is such a way to word. I don't really want to say compromise, but like alliances, there would be more opportunity for alliances and collaboration. I think if you had that many members. Yeah. And they were and they could be more responsive to the particular needs and of their constituents because they better understand them. And wouldn't be only worried about being primaried. I mean, we have like 16 members right now who are in a district that was won by the opposite party's candidate. Hmm. 16 out of 435. If nothing else, we'd get way more swing districts, which yeah. I think would be beneficial for the, for the running of Congress. Yeah. One point about, uh, I just want to circle back to your partner, Beth, 
And then I have a big subject that I want to cover with you. So Beth, I did ask, I didn't realize that she had uh, registered as a Democrat, but um, I, I did ask you about that because it seems that today's Republican Party is centering the likes of Adam Kinzinger and Ben Sass, whereas folks, the kinds of folks that I tend to identify with, uh, political figures like John Kasich, Colin Powell, Meg Whitman, Christine Todd Whitman, they were speaking at the DNC, you know. So yeah. I think the the bigger tent certainly is the Democratic Party. So I understand that. But since we have um, a little bit of time, I want to ask you the big one. I've heard you in several conversations about the idea of privilege. Mm -hmm. So I, I want to preface it by saying that two of my most treasured new relationships from over the past year have been with folks who I think it's fair to say came to our first encounters with this concept of privilege, like almost as a weapon and they're, you know, an arrow in their armor, armory, if you will, they, they seemed prepared to use against me, but I am happy to report that in both cases, while it might've been like it touched upon as a concept, it was never something, at least in these two cases that were like pulled out and uh, used as a cudgel against me. It does seem like in a lot of instances that other folks have used it as if they, it's almost like they were getting, they had a quota of like, I got to get so many licks in, you know? And uh, I've had personal encounters where I just, I, I felt like I, I just might've been the one that happened to be in front of them that day. But the difference is these, these other two people are now friends with whom I have a meaningful relationship. The other folks are ones I had an encounter with and not any, that were particularly instructive or, or edifying. So I'm going to make a comment and then I, I, I want to talk about it. So to me, this concept of privilege seems to have been deployed as a way to articulate who the antagonist is within a larger paradigm as a way to like make sense of where we are as a culture, how we got here, who's to blame and for many of our problems. So if I'm not aware of this lens, and for example, don't have all the accepted language within this way of seeing things, not only am I merely by virtue of what color I happen to be, or, you know, what sex I happen to be, or sexual identity, I, how I identify, or even how old I am, I end up being the villain of this paradigm. I'm not aware of being the bad guy. I'm not even up to speed on the whole story. All I know I guess I guess I bring it up because all I know is I I do know that I've been con cognizant for my entire conscious life of racial racial inequities and have earnestly attempted to be a part of a solution to such inequities and especially over this last year because of these relationships that have been so enriching and edifying have been sensitive to make sure that I have permission before even engaging if not at the very least rooting on but now due to my skin color, my age, my gender identity, I'm seemingly the villain of the whole thing. And I, I find that thinking <laughs> ironic, hypocritical, and frankly destructive more often than not. So I think that we are in the middle of a really intense experiment, which is building a truly multicultural democracy. And we are not the oldest democracy, but we are most certainly the first multicultural democracy, or at least uh, maybe the furthest along. I love the article I recently read that said our democracy is really only 50 years old since the Voting Rights Act and 
we're still trying to figure it out. And I truly think that's what's happening. I think we're trying to figure it out. How do we, how do we honestly do this? Not to, to reference my previous soapbox, but I think better proportional representation would get us a lot closer to that. But in our interpersonal relationships, um, what I see and what Beth and I've been talking a lot about is people who, because of what we were talking about before, because of strong identification with their either political party or um, social justice causes. And there's nothing wrong with that. Nothing wrong with that at all because they're so highly identified with that. And because everybody wants to be seen as internally consistent, you know, they want to feel like they're living out these identities. There's a desperation to, to show that to the world, right? Either through your language, through policing other people's language, through your social media posts, um, through book clubs and what you're reading. Oh man, I read, I read the best article about from the perspective of black booksellers um, over the racial justice, the racial justice in recent last summer and like how people would order all these books and then like the ugly things they would say to them when like the books weren't delivered, the books were in stock to these like black booksellers. I'm like, it's just, oh, it's all of humanity on full display. But <laughs> I think there is a desire to do that. And I don't think we have sort of taken the next step in evolution and integrated that. We're not talking about or leading or giving people good options. Okay, you care. I know you care about these things. I do too. How do we integrate that into our lives instead of it just being, it feeling very performative, right? How do we, instead of, like you said, like sort of creating these narratives where there's a villain how do we move beyond just using privilege as a way to critique and to create conflict? How do we integrate that so we're really moving towards something? I don't think it's an accident that some of the most successful civil rights movements of our time were grounded in faith communities, because I think that's in so many ways, like a lot of times what's missing. That doesn't mean I think people have to be a Christian like Dr. Martin Luther King in order to, to um, work towards that sort of progress that they care deeply about. I don't believe that, but I do believe that we are missing that, that broader framework so that we can, we can give people something to, to strive for. There was the best writing um, from one of my favorite people on the internet and Helen Peterson. And she interviewed Casper and I can't remember his last name, but I think he, he hosts the, the Harry Potter liturgy podcast, like Harry Potter, the sacred text. And he's fascinating because he's like, I don't think he's even a Christian, but he went to like a seminary in theology and he's like, has a doctorate in theology. And he understands like all those things church do for us that I really think is, is important to talk about, even if you don't believe in God, the ritual, the congregate, the congregating, the wider purpose, and just the space. I think human beings truly need a space to moralize. And since church attendance has plummeted, it's like they all, everybody went to Twitter and thought that was the best place to moralize or Facebook. And it's just not, it's not, yeah. it's not a good place to talk about what's right or wrong with each other. It just <laughs> isn't. Even though I think talking about what's right or wrong with each other and with regards to race and systems and policy is massively important, but it's like, we're trying to, we're asking politics and like 
politics on social media to hold everything and it, it is not built for that. It is not, some of these conversations are deeper, they're wider. Some have to do with policy, some have to do with history, some have to do with culture. Um, often those things are intermingled. And I just think we're, we're stuck. We can't, we don't have really great, especially with the pandemic on top of everything else, we don't have a lot of really good spaces, um, a lot of good rituals, a lot of good just cultural narratives about how to integrate. What does it mean if I care about racial justice? How do I integrate that in my life? Instead of just buying the right books off the list the New York Times gave me and then harassing the black bookseller because they didn't have them in <laughs> stock, right? Like we need that full integration and, and, and truly not to like show my cards as far as like how much I identify. I, I think that that is honestly what was so appealing about Joe Biden. I think he has a level of values integration, particularly with his own journey with grief and suffering um, and his own religious identification. I mean, I, I was reading a really interesting article about like, he's the first president we've had in a long time that goes to church every Sunday. And again, I don't think that's what it makes him a better person. I just think it gives you another space, a different uh, language, a different, a different perspective and framework with which to talk about these things with which to integrate them into your whole life. Cause I think we're, we're going to have to do some deep level of integration if we're going to continue this multicultural democratic experiment, because it's, we're in, you know, we're really making it up as we go, you know, even in, in democracies that are better run than ours, there's not that the level of uh, multiculturalism that we have in the United States, right. Where being an American despite the best efforts of some of the far right wing of the Republican Party is not an ethnic identity. You know, it's not it's not it's not what you're born. It's a choice. It's it's this this beautiful this beautiful idea that we have instead of something you're born into. And I think that that it's 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 hard. And I think there's, you know, especially in the pandemic, there just also needs to be a lot of space for like what we're doing is hard. That's okay. Just acknowledge like there's not one way to do it and it's going to be really difficult and we're all in different places. Some of us are way further along in this journey than others. That's the other thing. It's like, especially on Twitter, like it's like, we all have to decide where this is where we are and this is where we need to be. Well, we're all in different places. Like there's not going to be one tweet that applies to everybody. And it's just, it's, it's, I sound like George W. Bush in that debate. It's hard. It's hard work. I have two, re I have two reactions to the two issues that are raised. You're only allowed one. And I'm, 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 <laughs> I'm, I'm the pop and I'm going to take two. <laughs> okay. All right. Fair enough. I don't think there's any reason in the world to be moral ethical without God in the universe, hmm. which isn't to say that atheists aren't moral ethical people. What it is to say is that a society becomes more secularized and people have less of religious identification. The concept of morality and ethics changes and life becomes more transactional. Mm -hmm. And it's possible to rationalize, for example, separating families at the border mm. as a yeah. moral ethical thing because they're going through horrible, cruel things anyway and subjecting themselves to it. So why don't we just protect the borders and subject them to the same level of cruelty? That's the first reaction. The second reaction has to do with privilege. I'm a white, heterosexual, male in America. I've been the beneficiary and I was and I'm at the beginning of the baby boomer generation, which means that I 
You're old. That's what it means. <laughs> no, but it also means that I was able to benefit. Um, for example, in real estate, every time I bought a house, my house went up in value because the baby boomers behind me wanted to buy it from me. Now, it's not something I did. I didn't right. earn that. I'm not brilliant. Um, I'm privileged. I think the problem with white privilege is that most of the guys I know, they feel that if you talk about right, white privilege, you're diminishing them because they, whatever they've accomplished, yep. they didn't accomplish by virtue of their own work and achievement. Mm -hmm. Now, I'm a white heterosexual male. Everything I achieved in life, I achieved because I worked for it. I grew up over a grocery store. We were poor. I earned everything. I mean, I except my values and what my parents gave me spiritually, which is probably more important than anything else. But I'm not embarrassed by that. Mm -hmm. I accept it. Okay, so now let's move on from there. I am privileged. I didn't steal it from somebody. It just happened. That's the way life is. Let me listen to your story and acknowledge the fact that you started this 100-yard dash 20 yards behind me. Well, and you know what else I think that's so important about that? I think that the conversation is shifting in a really beneficial way, which, you know, one of the the best way I think to explain white privilege in, in particular is no one saying that you didn't have things you overcame. Your race was just not one of them. I think that puts people like you say it that way and people are like, OK, thank you. Like Because people hear white privilege and they hear I, you're, you're telling me I never overcame anything. Well, no, that's that's not what we're saying. We're just saying race wasn't one of them. But I think that it, it becomes. And I think it's a link to what you were saying about the secular transactional nature of our culture. There's this argument that like, it needs to be altruistic. Like your, your, your policy initiatives with regards to immigration, with regards to race, like it just needs to be like really altruistic and giving and just about lifting others up and, you know, showing your moral and ethical charitable nature and there's just a subset of society and you kind of need this in any group that's going to be like oh no we're going to protect our group we're going to do what's best for our group we're not out here just to give it away like people are going to hear that and they like shut down because the reality is there's no real there's no real true altruism I don't believe that I don't think anybody Mother Teresa anybody is ever 100% altruistic that's just not how our, our too much of our brain is a monkey brain right and I think there's a really valuable shift in the way we talk about it coming around. I see more and more of it. There's a woman named Heather McGee who just came out with a book about race. She wrote a great thing in the times about like, this is good for everybody. Like if you, she uses the analogy of the public pools in the sixties, like they would fill in public pools that white people swam in and benefited from in order to keep black people out. Like, you don't have to see that and be altruistic to realize, like, you can see that and just be like, I want a place for my white kids to swim. Like, you can be self-motivated and realize that policy is bad. Anti-racist work can also in, in advance the economic advantages of everybody. You don't have to be altruistic to realize, like, immigration is great. Let's talk about the baby boomers. When they started Social Security, there were like 6.3 workers per retiree. Now there are like three, we can open our borders and allow more people in and it serves lots of people, you know, like it's not just do the right thing because you're a good person and let me project my, 
like moral superiority by these policy positions because I'm truly altruistic. No, you you can make it you can make an argument because policy really shouldn't be a playground for everybody's moralizing. Right. Policy should be what sir does the most good for the most people with the less harm like and like what's a good use of our resources and what's a good use for our like what is applicable with regards to our national security like so that talking in those terms to people i think is really important and i think sometimes when we get in conversations about race like it becomes like unless you just want to like kind of self-flagellate and like just bow down to how bad everybody is and your group is particularly bad and like this this I think I don't even know if it's real but I think people feel this call to like self-villainize and that's the only way you get to like pass go is really detrimental on lots and lots and lots of levels I think it kills the conversation I don't think it creates great policy I definitely don't think it persuades people that we need in order to pass good policy that shrinks the wealth gap and improves everybody's education, helps us fund social security, all of those things. Um, and I, I, I feel like I've seen a shift where it's less like we're integrating that more and we're realizing like just saying you're bad, I'm good, or your stance is bad, I'm good. Like doesn't really, again, it doesn't work. I want things that work and get us further along. Yeah. So you're optimistic about the future of America. You think this is the dark before the dawn? I mean, I am... Yeah, I think I am. I think that I think for the most part, we are that the human race and not just America heads in the right direction and that we learn more, you know, I'm not to get like super woo woo, but I do believe in sort of like connected consciousness and we we make progressions and we learn more and some people evolve and and kind of bring the rest of us with them in a certain way. So, yeah, I think I'm over I'm overall optimistic with a heavy dose of pragmatism and that I do think there's a lot of three steps forward and two steps back, sometimes three steps forward, four steps back. Um, But even in the three steps forward, four steps back, we learn a lot, right? We learn a lot that hopefully makes the next step forward easier. How many steps back was the election to Donald Trump? (laughs) That was like, well, I mean, in some ways it was in some ways, like, don't you feel like it in its revelation of what was really happening, it accelerated so many conversations. Like it accelerated policy. Yes, it's so clarifying. And the pandemic's been the same way. I think we just, we see things like trends are accelerated dramatically. We learn so much. We have to, we, we had a we had a disaster and mental health expert on our show, which I did not know that was a specialty or I would have pursued it because I'm fascinated. Um, and she was just saying, like, in a way, every disaster is an opportunity when you live in community with one another. Like every it's an opportunity to look at things from a different perspective and to see what what really needs improving and what was really weak and what like I think that and I think that's true. We don't always take advantage of those opportunities. I'm not naive, but I think they're always there. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it was a this has been a clarifying chapter uh, politically, mm-hmm. theologically. You know, I've had so many conversations where I'm just thinking, you really don't believe that love is patient, love is kind, it does not envy, it does not boast. That's not what you believe. You don't believe that the fruit of the spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness. You know. So anyway, that but that's that the, no, we'd I have believe. to have a whole other set of conversations about that. Definitely. Uh, last question, and then a couple points of order. Any questions for the hosts for us? 
No, this has been great. You, this has been so much fun. I mean, I would like you to write a, a book because I want to know everything about what it was like in your relationship when you converted to Christianity. Please and thank you. And I'm definitely going to text my friend Laura, who I was telling you about this, <laughs> the second this is over and be like, listen to who I just talked to. All I'll say about that is that I have a good friend who uh, he's a screenwriter, has written many films and plays, and he wanted to write a story about a Jew from Jersey who became a Christian, but he's, his specialty is comedy. So he wanted to interview my dad to get some, you know, material and do his proper research. So I called my dad. I said, dad, my friend, he writes comedy. He wants to write a funny story about a Jew from Jersey who becomes a Christian. His first response was, that's not funny. (laughs) (laughs) So 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 how can we find pantsuit politics? Well, you can find Pantsy Politics wherever you find podcasts mm-hmm. on Apple Podcasts, uh, Spotify, Stitcher, Overcast, wherever you listen, we'll be right. there. And then I also want to enthusiastically plug, I think you're wrong, but I'm listening to the book that y'all wrote together uh, a couple of years ago now. It's really broken down quite well. Uh, it's it's almost like a written so that it's, it, is it 12 steps? It's 10. like a 12 step program. Yeah, is it really? 10 steps. 10 steps. So, yeah. 10 steps. Okay. Yeah. Um, it's great. And, and if, listen, if you don't want nuance, you know, then, then don't read this book, (laughs) but if you're into nuance, if you're into enriching relationships into being given some tools to have meaningful conversations, uh, not that you have to agree with everyone, but to have, to have better conversations with people that you do disagree with to, to have the courage to love your neighbor to have mm-hmm. the strength to disagree well. You know, yeah. there's so many just great principles in this Learn book. how to listen. Yeah. Listening is a skill. All right, be quiet. I'm not listening. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just kidding. All right, so uh, last but not least, CASA, nationalcasagal.org, C-A-S-A, nationalcasagal.org. Tell us a little bit about that. Yes, I'm a court, court appointed special advocate. And so often in the family court system with children that are removed from their families in any type of placement, be it foster or um, in the adoptive process or placed with family guardians, you know, they have a social worker, they have a lawyer. Those people can change throughout the time that they're in the system. The idea behind CASA is that they have a person that that is their advocate and who does not change. Um, so my job as a CASA is to advocate for the child uh, 100% of the time from the second they step into the system until they're out of it to find them resources, educational or otherwise, to support them and just to be to be there for them um, as they are inside a really, you know, stressful, hard, difficult situation and system. So it's very re- hard but rewarding work and an organization I believe in and the you know the outcomes for kids who have casas are so much better than the kids who don't so they're always they always no matter where you live um you know you can go to the website and donate or you can sign up to be a casa in your area you don't need a law degree you know whatever you do for a living you know there's it's a very intensive training program but they can show you how to be a great advocate for a child awesome and again the url is nationalcasagal.org that's national C-A-S-A-G-A-L.org. And Sarah Stewart Holland, you, you're you just awesome. I'm so Thank glad. You. What a privilege to get to uh, talk about privilege. You know what? It is a privilege. That's it's right. It's to, to talk to you. Oh, thank you. <laughs> so I appreciate it. And uh, Pops, thanks uh, thanks for doing your thing. 
Thankful. Good to see you. Th- thanks for putting up with me. You Thank bet. you. This has been great. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for joining us today. If you appreciate what you heard here, please go to iTunes or anywhere you get your podcasts. Give us a five-star rating and leave a review. That really helps move us up the chart so others can find out what we're up to here. For Ronnie Nathan, I'm Corey Nathan, and we've been talking politics and religion without killing each other. We'll be back in a few days to do our little part in Tikkun Olam. <laughs>